Welcome to Babes Get Baked, your fave pod podcast, hosted by your babe, Ashley Shea. We'll spill all the high tea and nothing is off limits. Welcome back to another episode of Babes Get Baked. Today, I'm so excited. We're here with Rebecca Cronman, LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, writer, founder of Plant Parenthood. And this was also very delightful to learn. She's also worked with older adolescents and adults involved in the criminal justice system. And as a side project, she taught yoga and meditation at Rikers Island in New York to sentence inmates. Rebecca, that's amazing. I'm a huge yogi myself. That's incredible. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. You you dug deep into the bio. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely loved it. So tell me how you became active in the psychedelic space and the story behind Plant Parenthood. Sure. So I've been working for several years as a psychotherapist in private practice. My background training was in mindfulness, in somatic and experiential techniques. And right around the time that Michael Pollan's book came out, and this was maybe 2018, I read the book and sort of recognized that there was tremendous overlap between the modalities as a, that I was using as a psychotherapist and the psychedelic field. So I got some training through an organization that is now called Fluence. They provide training for psychotherapists who, who are interested in this space, in, informed by harm reduction techniques. And then things just took off very quickly. So the majority of my practice kind of got taken over by clients who were preparing or integrating from psychedelic experiences. And then I folded in more recently in the last two years or so, I folded in ketamine assisted psychotherapy as it became more available to uh, non-prescribing clinicians like myself to have access to um, ketamine prescriptions or for their patients to have access to ketamine prescriptions. And then because I had been sort of immersed in the psychedelic community space for a couple of years, what I recognized was that there was plenty of opportunities for people to gather under the general umbrella of psychedelics. But when I first started, and it wasn't that long ago, there were not so many communities that were targeted towards more niche audiences. So there was, uh, at that time, there was not much for BIPOC or LGBTQ populations, and there wasn't anything for parents specifically. So I decided to start this group to meet the need for people to gather, not just around psychedelics in general, but around being a parent who uses psychedelics or is interested in psychedelics. And then, you know, I think what I have recognized throughout the course of this project was that when you have a more niche community where there's greater resonance around other areas of your life, it just allows you to open up more, to find like-minded peers, and to be able to talk about more specific topics with people who you know are going to get it. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. Maybe if you can describe if people don't know what are integration circles, and then with Plant Parenthood, do you also do them in person and online? So an integration circle can look like a lot of different things. 
The way that we run ours is pretty free form, meaning that we'll provide some general structure and and what we hope is a safe container. And then people talk about whatever they want to talk about. So they'll be talking about how to um, have conversations with their children around psychedelics. They'll be talking about thinking about giving their children psychedelics. They'll be speaking about how using psychedelics has changed their relationship within their family system. So with with their own parents, with their children, talking about, you know, having fun with psychedelics and trying not to feel bad about that, right? It's like parents, well, so, some parents also have fun as well. So I know that's like a little known fact. Right? <laughs> yeah, so once you become a parent, you're boring. Fun. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, um, so, you know, we, we provide these circles uh, monthly-ish. We're trying to do them a little bit more frequently. And yes, we are actually beginning to meet in person again um, because we're an, actually sort of an international organization. We um, have met with people all over the country. And I really mean all over the country, not just the two coasts, but um, people in parts of the country where these conversations are a lot less common and a lot more stigmatized. So we're pleased to be able to offer a space for people to communicate about things that are really challenging to talk about in the pickup line for, you know, for the carpool line for the kids or the PTA meeting. Like these are not conversations that are always safe for people to bring up there. and then we're looking to expand more to in-person circles because we understand that in-person, it just feels so much better. The, this digital age that we've been living in is, um, is not doing much to help people feel more connected to each other. Mm-hmm. So although these circles definitely feel a need, you know, the virtual circles feel a need, um, it's not the same. And we're hopeful to do more of that work in the future in person. Yeah. When did you start facilitating these integration circles with Plant Parenthood? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. So Plant Parenthood was founded in 2020, the beginning of 2020. Um, I founded it um, and then uh, quickly was joined by my colleague, Andrew Rose. He and I are both trainers with Fluence, which I mentioned before. Uh, And then more recently, we were joined by another colleague, uh, Aaron Dunn, who's out in Portland. Um, Andrew is in Montreal, as I mentioned to you before. And we began the integration circles, oh gosh, probably like eight months after I founded the group or, or something. I can't, I can't remember exactly when, um, but that's our core event. And then the other thing that we do are educational events. So webinars about doing integration when with your kids. Um, uh, we just did a, a webinar that was really um, got a lot of attention on kids, t- kids and psychedelics, uh, meaning kids taking psychedelics, which is, um, you know, on the surface, it might sound like a very wild or sort of out there topic, but um, it, it has been happening. It is happening and it's going to happen a lot more in the future. So we felt the need to address it in a more concentrated and intentional way. Yeah, no, definitely. And I know you mentioned um, one of the topics is, you know, how to disclose psychedelics use with your kids. So, you know, let's say if someone's child did come up and ask them about psychedelics or 
if they were curious, what tips or even conversations have you had around that? Because I know for one, you know, obviously with everyone in the community, we don't want to perpetuate, you know, a quote unquote danger of psychedelics or drugs, right? So obviously framing it in in a certain way. For sure. I mean, we are hopeful that there will be more fact-based conversations around drugs in general. Mm -hmm. Um, We can play a part in helping parents facilitate with their kids. The reality is that kids are still getting, um, excuse my language, but like some seriously bullshit education around drugs in school. Um, I don't think it's changed, has it? (laughs) uh, I don't know that it's changed very much. And I, I have a colleague who works a lot more in that space and she knows much more about this, but um, I think maybe, uh, I think I saw her say something about 50% of schools are still teaching sort of like an abstinence, um, only drug education program. Yeah. Um, but that's not the, it doesn't, um, line up with what's actually happening in terms of kids behavior. So it is for going to be for the parents to be able to educate their, their kids about, um, about drugs in general and psychedelics in particular, um, I think it really depends on the age of the child. So, you know, we think a lot about inbound questions versus outbound information sharing. So I have a first grader and a third grader and psychedelics are not in their life as, as, you know, in their peer group right now. Um, It's not super relevant for them. So they hear me talk about my work and I speak about um, substances very openly, um, but it's, it doesn't necessarily click all the way because it's not in their environment. Um, however, some of the things that I share with them are about what psychedelics do. Um, I com- compare it to like a dream state. Um, I talk about how they help people deal with pain and sadness Um, and we talk about it in a larger context of the war on drugs as well and the inequity that exists Mm -hmm. in, um, in sentencing laws in, um, who is, who gets in trouble. Um, and you know, if any, for anybody who has young kids, they understand that kids are like obsessed with fairness, you know, like, I, when I pour the, you know, the orange juice in the two cups for the kids, it's like, I'm, you know, getting at eye level, make sure that each of them have exactly the same amount. So they get that concept for sure. And, and they get that um, drug laws are not implemented in a fair way. Um, for older kids, when these substances are in their environment, mm-hmm. I think parents, you know, uh, would do well to talk to their kids about what they are seeing, what they are experiencing, um, you know, what, um, what they are, what they're seeing in their peer group, what kinds of drugs are going around their peer group and thinking in particular about set and setting around psychedelics that, you know, experimentation is one thing, but knowing who these friends are, um, knowing what the substance is, because of course, sometimes you don't, it comes as a white powder and it's not clear what that substance is. Um, giving them access to, um, you know, uh, harm reduction kind of supplies like fentanyl testing kit- kits, if that feels appropriate to the parent. 
Um, maybe the parent feels comfortable kind of setting up some kind of container for that experience to occur. Uh, and it really depends on, it depends on the family. It depends on the person's level of monitoring in the community. So um, for example, a black or brown parent may not feel comfortable providing space for their child to try psychedelics because their community might be over-policed. Mm-hmm. And the same thing applies to disclosure. I think there's a lot of emphasis in the psychedelic community on so quote unquote, like, I don't know about this term, but like coming out of the psychedelic closet, tell everyone that you're doing psychedelics, break the stigma. Well, that may be great for you as a person who possesses inherent privilege, but for a lot of people, it's not safe for them to do that. They may be in a custody battle where all of their actions are going to be um, monitored and they may be, you know, being monitored disproportionately by the medical system, by the, by the healthcare system, by the education system. So it really is a very personal decision on whether to disclose to one's children. Um, you know, children, I don't think should be our secret keepers. So whatever we disclose to them, it needs to be uh, kind of safe for them to be able to share it a little bit more broadly. And so it's, very community specific and privilege specific. Yeah, no, that's an incredible answer. And I do really appreciate how you've done that seminar with kids in psychedelics and also largely touched on, you know, the racial inequities and financially, economically as well. And that's, that's very important, especially in terms of the whole war on drugs from um, Ronald Reagan's days. Um, although I'm not American myself. That's okay. We we exported it worldwide. So you don't have to be American to enjoy the benefits of the war on drugs. <laughs> yeah, exported it worldwide. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Not that happened, that occurred, but um, <laughs> how you framed that. Yes. Another topic I wanted to talk about, pregnancy and psychedelics. And I'm sure you get this a ton with what you do and with Plant Parenthood, but I know a lot of Mothers or expecting mothers are wondering, using while pregnant or or while breastfeeding, you know, are there any adverse side effects? But there's also, you know, anthropological literature on the subject that this has happened, you know, historically. Can you shed more light on this? Sure. Yeah, it sounds like you've dug into it a little bit yourself. We get lots and lots of questions about pregnancy and, and breastfeeding or chest feeding. And, you know, the sort of maybe frustrating response that I tend to give is that um, there is no one answer on this and that people will actually need to come to a conclusion that is not necessarily based on Western peer-reviewed evidence-based research. It doesn't exist. And it won't exist, most likely, because it's not ethical to say to an expecting birthing parent, you know, would you like to be enrolled in this study where- Yeah, we can't just gather like thousands of mothers, hey, take some passenger shrooms. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) You can't do that. So um, as you mentioned, we do rely on anthropological research and cultural experiences that are not in the sort of Western canon. And what we see is, honestly, what we see is like that studies are extremely small scale, that they have not been replicated, and that we kind of have to go with a different sort of wisdom. And so how do we sort of derive that wisdom? 
Well, I think one thing is in um, using a harm reduction informed um, framework that kind of says to us, the health of the birthing parent is the utmost important. And if the birthing parent is not capable of functioning in a way that supports them being able to attach to their baby, then we, we need to look at what kinds of interventions might support them being able to do so. Um, or we may need to look at that. And so we already have birthing parents who are instructed to continue taking, you know, medications throughout, throughout their pregnancy. Um, it's not that there's no precedent for uh, birthing parents to be ingesting substances throughout a pregnancy. In addition to that, and we also need to think about environmental factors. So, okay, you, you know, you think about a birthing parent who um, decides to continue microdosing. Okay, well, you know, you might be sort of shocked and horrified by that, but there's birthing parents who live in uh, environments where there's toxic water or, or, you know, the, the air is toxic, or there's birthing parents who are ingesting foods with um, chemicals in them that are not um, safe for that, uh, safe for the pregnancy. So it's really difficult to kind of isolate one chemical compound and say, well, that's the one that caused an issue in the developing fetus or in the, in the child. So we need to kind of look at, at this with a broader lens. And that being said, I think there becomes a more important distinction between very recreational use and um, therapeutic use. And that's a decision that's going to be highly individualistic. The birthing parent will know whether they really are relying on this substance for their well-being and maybe their life, right? Like maybe these are life-saving measures for them. And in that case, we want to look at reducing harm as much as possible. So, you know, you're in the cannabis uh, space as well. So a good example is, is your pipe being cleaned after each use? Are you using a clean pipe each time? Ingesting any kind of ash or tar, things like that. Uh, and, and we also know that we have pretty crummy options for treating things like hyperemesis in pregnancy. Hyperemesis is when the birthing parent like constantly is throwing up and not keep food down. So for example, we know that cannabis is really effective for some birthing parents in treating hyperemesis, but otherwise that would be treated with another chemical, right? So right. Yeah, you know, we're, we're always ingesting chemicals during our, um, during pregnancy. As far as breastfeeding or chest feeding, there is some little, little bit of research on ketamine and how much of the ketamine get, passes through to the, the nursing baby. In essence, it found that after a period of time, and I'm, I can't quite remember the, the time frame that the, the compound um, is metastasized through the bloodstream, which is the same uh, system that produces breast milk. And it is safe for a birthing parent to breastfeed or chestfeed their child after a time period. That study is by Phil Wolfson and Melissa Whippo, as um, among other authors, I believe. Yeah, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head with your response there. I know everyone wants a definitive yes or no, is this good or bad? Not just with this topic, but with everything, right? Just tell me, right? And no one wants to really do the research 
themselves. But I mean, there are so many factors, like you mentioned, that go into this. I mean, let's say even without, if a parent is, uh, or the birthing parent is, you know, consuming any psychedelics, you know, the health of their child, of their baby, you know, depends on maybe like their age and like hereditary traits, nutrition, diet, exercise. So there's just so many things. And yeah, unfortunately, but also fortunately, we can't do a robust study and and see what happens. I yeah. think one thing that I didn't mention there that I, that I definitely want to make mention of is that we, when we're talking about this right now, we're talking about harm reduction. And the other way to look at this is that uh, is benefit maximization. So that that concept is from Dr. Carl Hart. Um, and one one thing that is different in some indigenous cultures where they have a plant medicine a sacrament or you know there's ritualized consumption of plant medicine is that you're you're not denying someone knowledge or an experience of plant medicine if that's part of the culture, because th- that's like saying like, no, you can't have any carrots. Like, why would you do that? Right. Like there's something wholesome and nourishing and about ingesting those substances. So um, there are certain cultures that we can look towards for a much different framework around these practices. Absolutely. Well, Rebecca, that's, incredible we're just going to end off with a few questions what is something you can't live without oh my gosh snuggles from my kiddos oh cool. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't know why i said of course i don't have kids but yeah i, guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have my pillow pretty tightly so. that's right <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self oh my gosh what i would say to my younger self is you're okay as you are. I think a lot of people in this space in particular come, you know, come to the work from their own place of not feeling secure in their own skin. And, you know, these um, medicines that we work with in this field are such incredible tools of self-love. So would, would have been great to have access to that sooner. Yeah. Another thing that I would have said to my younger self, you know, I like really laugh sometimes that at the, you know, the work that I do, because I have had experiences with these substances that were just very different than the way that I implement them now, but without this sort of knowledge base and with a lot, a lot of stigma, you know, that I felt about what it, what, what I was doing. And that was like a youthful, you know, youthful experimentation period that lots of people go through. Um, and I wish that I could have gone back and talked to my younger self and said, this actually doesn't put a hole in your brain. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be good to know what this actually is <laughs> that you're taking. Absolutely. But I guess with all the work you're doing now, you're, you're helping the younger generation. So oh, I'll hope so. Yes. Rebecca, it's such a pleasure. How can people connect with you and learn more about Planned Parenthood? Uh, You can connect with us through our newsletter, which you can sign up for at www.plantph.com. You can also find us on Instagram, which is um, at plant underscore P-A-R-N-T underscore hood. So plant parenthood. Hard, hard to get that handle <laughs> and we're in the same place on facebook 
um, would be great to hear from your listeners um, and um, get them involved in some of these conversations. Definitely. Rebecca, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. You're such a gem. If I'm ever in New York, I'll see if I can hit you up. I know you're quite busy probably, but thank you so much again for you and everything you're doing in the community. Oh, thank you so much, Ashley. Yes, come for a bagel. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening, babes. Subscribe to know when the latest episode drops and follow us on Instagram at babesgetbaked. And keep an eye out for some exciting new developments on babesgetbaked.com.